0: so welcome everyone to our second colloquium uh, we have very special guests today it's our first ag Biofuse cohort and they're going to be presenting two topic uh, two topics two ideas from their their group project and it's called consolidation and innovation in in agricultural biotechnology and we're going to have two separate presentations so the We'll have one presentation and then leave some room for feedback and questions after. So that'll be 20 minutes plus another 10 minutes of Q&A. And then we're going to have another presentation in the same format of 20 20 minutes and then uh, 10 minutes for Q&A. So uh, first, is it going to be Eli or Dalton that goes first? Eli, so let me unmute you. Okay, and I'm going to help you with the timing as well, and go ahead, it's all yours.
1: Okay, um, thank you. So, uh, as Todd and Don mentioned, we're the first AgBioFuse cohort, um, and one of the cornerstones of our program is that we finalize the formal two years in the fellowship uh, with the development and execution of a group research project. Um, and so we have done some work on development of the topic we'd like to work on. Um, we've gone through some rounds of topic discovery. We've written some pre-proposals that were reviewed by AgBioFuse faculty. Uh, and what we'd like to do today is take the two uh, prospective topics that we've developed uh, the strongest interest in, give you a brief presentation, really we're, we're shooting for five to 10 minutes of our presentation, and then solicit uh, three things from you in um, the discussion. So first, uh, suggestions about what you think may yet be improved. Um, Second, ideas about areas you think we may need to look or things we may have overlooked. And third, um, if you think this is interesting, and hopefully you do, uh, what you'd like to see in a review? What would make this uh, more interesting for you to read? So please uh, comment in the chat, it is being actively monitored um, and then during the, after the presentation you can also raise your hand. Uh, To give you an idea of the type of work that we're looking at doing, uh, we started out initially interested in primary work, that is either collecting or analyzing data, Um, however, given our time constraints and the COVID constraints, uh, the plan we have now, is that at least one of these two topics will move forward by the end of our second semester into a review which is submitted for publication. Uh, depending on how things go, if they go well, we may uh, submit something on both topics. If they go really well, we may be able to submit a review and move forward into primary work. Um, so that, that should give you an idea of the scope of ideas um, that we may be able to work with. So. Uh, The first topic, which I'm going to present, uh, relates to consolidation in farming. And what's shown here on this slide is that over about 25 years, from 1987 to 2012, and this continues onward, uh, the share of farmland accounted for by the largest farms, farms 2,000 acres and over, uh, approximately tripled. So that's that green line on on the top. Uh, And it's not that we added more farmland in the United States. Total farmland actually went down a bit. Um, Instead, you can see that farmland was transferred from small and medium farms, represented by the gray, yellow, and red bands here, into this larger category. So that is farm consolidation in terms of land area. Um, Land ownership or renting and management is being transferred from smaller farms into larger entities. Uh, we can also see something very interesting um, about the difference between smaller and larger farms. So if you look here uh, at the middle pie, um, the the brown pie slice uh, is small family farms, which still account for about half the farmland area uh, in the US. But if you look on the right pie, only account for about a quarter of the agricultural production. By contrast, these largest farms, which are around 2000 acres and upwards, um, still only account for a relative minority, 16% of farms by land, but produce uh, 35% of our production value. That is, even though they account for well under half the land area of small farms, they produce more of our production than those small farms. And by way of drawing a regression line, you can also see that medium-sized farms account for about a quarter of the land and produce about a quarter of the production. So it appears that there's some relationship between productivity adjusted for land area um, and size. So larger farms seem to be able to produce more per unit of land per acre in terms of profits and yield than smaller farms. Um, We can see some other trends related to consolidation. For example. If you look at this track of crop diversity, basically as the colors get hotter, that's indicating that fewer crop species are used in that agricultural county. Um, You can see that there's sort of an epicenter of dropping diversity here in uh, the bread basket. Um, That orange splotch has gotten larger um, and now it contains some red splotches. Um, And that splotch coincides Uh, with our hotspot of farm consolidation where farm sizes on average have doubled in that same region. So we see some very interesting trends related to consolidation. Um, And we've seen some uh, attempts at identifying uh, the the factors that may be behind uh, why a farm would consolidate. So larger farms have access to uh, economies of scale. Um, They require less labor, um, per output or per acre to operate, um, they can have better access to things like mechanization and technology. Um, but a, a lot of the the work along these lines, which points out the benefits of consolidating, sometimes amounts to saying, you know, good work if you can get it. Um, what we are not as good at um, is actually distinguishing things that cause consolidation from things that are caused by consolidation. So we we see these interesting correlations, but In the literature there's not a lot of great um, identification of causal relationships. Um, So we don't see um, a lot of literature addressing what exactly um, causes large farms to be so much more productive per acre than small farms. Um, So is it uh, their particular use of fertilizer? Is it the timing of their insecticide sprays? The the choice of crops? Um, Is it the effect of not being fragmented? that uh, hasn't been addressed in a unified way. Um, And the same for economic factors. So it's not just that a large farm is profitable, but we have to understand uh, why do small and medium farms, uh, sized farms choose to uh, sell or rent their land to these larger entities? And who is able to become a larger entity? Um, Those questions have have not been so well addressed. And that's what we'd like to get at uh, in a review of this topic. So with a general interest in understanding what causes farm consolidation, what causes um, drops in diversity, we'd like to collect from the literature uh, people who have published hypotheses about causal relationships, not just correlations. Um, And we'd also like to ask specifically whether we can isolate the effect of GMOs in agriculture, because these relative to some other things Um, Are fairly discrete changes, but which again have not been uh, very well isolated to date in the literature. Um, We've already seen a couple of things that um, are probably relevant to a review. Um, One of them is making fungible uh, different reviews or papers which use different measures of farm sizes. For example, one big paper may use income as a measure of farm size, another may use land area. So we can do the unsexy work of making those things more an apples to apples comparison we can look at finer scales, like in that county level uh, diversity graph that I showed you. Um, But for the purposes of discussion, um, we wanna ask whether anyone has information we may have missed based on this brief presentation about cause and effect, what you'd most like to see from a review on cause and effect. Um, and uh, any critiques, interesting ideas from this topic. Um, so, if you have questions, like I mentioned, you can go ahead and uh, put them in the uh, in the chat or raise your hand on Zoom, and we will uh, go ahead and get to them. Thank you. I just and.
2: Before uh, you started, Eli, I just wanted to clarify, in the chat, Gene asked the question, what's the definition of farm? In the first two figures, it was management, it was ruled by management, and it's any uh, farm producing over $1,000 worth of agricultural products. So it's a pretty low bar for what qualifies as the farm.
1: Yeah. So, and to be clear, those a lot of the smallest farms under that designation are probably non-self-sustaining. You know, that that's people who have a job and also have um, livestock or or some land with crops.
3: Hi, I have a quick question. This is Amanda Manello. Um, so, I'm I am not sure if you're looking at the demographics of who necessarily own the farms, but a question that pops up for me in this um, overall topic is. Uh, you know, who has access to l- loans for actually acquiring um, farmland and how that may be different for dim- different uh, demographics of people. Um, and also, what's the definition of a family farm? And is there a benefit to having your farm labeled as a family farm versus maybe, I'm not sure even what, what other notations you know, might might be, but is that beneficial for what subsidies you get um, from the government and things like that? Um, Just kind of curious about how those definitions fit in with your overall question. Thank you.
1: Um, So thank you. Um, Those are excellent questions. Um, And please let me know if I miss uh, any of the sub questions there. But so um, in terms of being a family farm, most farms, in the U.S. are family farms, um, and they generally are can be divided further into small, medium, and large family farms. So these 2,000 acre and up category that we're interested in um, are generally still family-held large farms, and that can be distinguished based on questions in the agricultural census, um, which asks things like, who is the primary owner and operator of your farm? Is it you? Is it a relative? Um, the a uh, fraction of farms based on, I think it's the McDonald report here, um, which are owned by non-families is still pretty small. And um, even though it conjures up the image of maybe investor driven farming, their average size um, is actually smaller than the category of large family farms. Um, the question in terms of access to capital is very interesting. Um, I know we've seen it in the literature. I don't know if anyone else from the cohort wants to go further on that question
4: um,
2: there has been some there have been some studies that have' kind of looked into it, but no one has explicitly examined it. It seems like the demographics and loan piece has been less examined, but there do seem to be certain benefits that come with being a large farm. It seems like these loans, these opportunities, these programs are geared more towards the large farmers and they get the benefits from a lot of these programs.
1: Mm -hmm. BT does not kill off crickets, Um, so, I don't know, I'm not hearing crickets, but yeah. Um, Another question then for discussion. Uh, This graph was very interesting to us, Um, and it's one that caused us to uh, reconsider some of the assumptions we may be making. So, there is sometimes a prevailing assumption um, that uh, we want to see small family farms um, with a diversity of agriculture. Um, But when you consider that uh, a drop in diversity and an increase in size um, corresponds to greater productivity of land, um, one question you may want to ask values wise is do you care more about? Uh, the number of people involved in farming and the relationship of farming to livelihood um, Or do you care more about? Uh, being able to feed more people off a given piece of land um, Any thoughts from the audience about uh, the factors that may go in to uh, asking that type of question
5: Yeah, um, I just want to add um, I'm Allison also a member of the cohort Gene um, Jean are um, put a note in the chat about kind of the same topic where um, you're seeing kind of soybean and corn farms increasing um, in size, these kind of lower diversity farms. But the smaller farms seem to be um, kind of maintaining that diversity. And I just want to say it was not totally reflected in the kind of earlier figures we saw, but to some extent it seems like this consolidation is more of a, a hollowing out of the middle and that the very, very small farms um, are I guess, relatively untouched, or sometimes become more diverse in these situations. Um, So I do think that's an important aspect in how kind of diversity um, of crop intersects there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see
1: a hand from Jennifer Baltzigar.
3: Yeah, so um, your previous question about how to balance You know, the values between feeding more people and having more farmers, um, I think goes along really well with what Allison was just talking about and the diversity in the crops because, you know, you can only eat so much corn and most of this corn isn't for human consumption. So I think adding in that kind of perspective might be helpful. And that's all I really have to say.
1: Thanks. Yeah. That, that is something we've talked about. Um, and I know something that comes up a lot in general reviews of GM crops, that there's big differences in acceptance, um, for feed versus food. Um, and I see a hand
4: from Zach Brown. So, uh, the, your discussion about the productivity, uh, relationship there between like larger farms producing more per acre. Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I'm a, a little hesitant here because this is not my area of expertise, but probably I probably know more about it than a lot of other people on the call. So there's a stylized um, fact in agricultural economics called the inverse farm size productivity relationship that has been studied in international contexts a lot, um, which is the actually the exact opposite, uh, which is that you know at, at the productivity the per the yield um, per acre has been shown in other contexts to actually go, d- go down the larger the farm becomes. Um, and so I'm sure this is I, you know I'm, I'm sure agricultural economists with like the ERS and whatnot would have comments on why the, why the US is different in that case and I have a suspicion it has something to do with levels of industrialization in agriculture but, but you might find that fruit, a fruitful comparison just to, to look into why in some contexts there's an inverse relationship between farm size and productivity. Whereas in this case, it looks like uh, the opposite is the case. And then I think pretty likely a pretty likely explanation or factor there is technology and the way that it's being used. And that, so in that case, then uh, I think some of the, some of there's some comments from Fred, for example, about, um, you know, the, uh, the GM crops and whatnot as part of that technology package. So I think maybe a more precise question is what, uh, to what degree do GM crops play a role in determining either a positive or negative relationship in farm in that farm size productivity relationship? And I would love I would love to see a review of that actually. It'd be helpful for me to see that kind of, someone go, look, go through the literature and look at that.
2: Yeah, and I'll, I'll take a second to actually connect this back to something that Joanna had brought up in the chat as well. She was asking what our research question is. And I think that this issue of uh, caus- causation and correlation is kind of what trips a lot of us up. Um, It's obvious that GE crops are not the sole cause of consolidation. It was happening long before GE crops were brought to the market. We're interested in um, exploring how GE crops interact in this whole sphere of consolidation.
1: Uh, Um, And I wanna pull up uh, a couple more comments from the chat um, that that relate to this area. So uh, one, I'd see uh, Gene Goodwin notes that we are defining productivity on an annual basis instead of a century basis. Um, That's very true. And even within these annual measures, we see uh, differences on on whether you define that as cash, which can be affected by uh, reduced labor or yield, which is more a factor of your management and biotic issues. Um, it relates to one of the topics um, in this summary slide about intercomparison. That it's not that data isn't available to use those different measures, but um, something which may be interesting for a number of the comments here um, is that someone kind of has to go in the literature and do the, the unit conversions and look at the history to make it so that we can uh, see how different facts come out as we look at it in different ways. Um, and I see Jason Delborne asking that. Topic as well, yeah, and I also I see a comment from Fred Gould mentioning herbicide tolerance as more of a factor than BT, um, and this is one of those things where we see, uh, and I, if anyone else from the cohort wants to jump in in a second, but I think having had the field experience, we see anecdotes coming up about these specific management relationships of GM traits, um, but not a really rigorous story that continues through the literature that that gives us that causal relationship. So that's actually right at the core of what initiated our interest in this area. Um, I think based on what we've seen, there's a good chance it may not be fully answered without primary work, but it's definitely something we've looked into and something we'd have a lot of interest, I think, in being uh, contacted about if anyone has some information or hypotheses that uh, we may not have covered here. And I see, um, as well, a couple of questions or comments. So Dylan Spangle, um, and please speak up, Dylan, if I don't get this right, um, is says, it could be interesting to try to model how smaller, more diverse farms might affect productivity and the consequences of that. How much less productive would we be and in what ways? Um, so do I understand that you're uh, suggesting we, we sort of try to model what may have occurred had consolidation not happened?
2: Uh, yes, that that's basically what I'm saying. Or like if, uh, you know, in some, if this trend over the next like few decades, what could potentially happen? I know there are a lot of factors in that, but uh, this seems like a question, an interesting question to me, like, know what the you know um, you know what the level of effect uh, consolidation is having versus you know other
5: factors
1: Um, yes thank you Um, and I know we are drawing a lot of connections between this topic and the ag biofuse course we're currently taking on modeling Um, so I think what exactly we cover in that course is going to have a strong influence on the direction um, of this work. Um, I know we've discussed having a more of a prevence sort of historical descriptive model, um, but we've definitely talked about the idea of prediction or sort of the alternate reality type analyses. That, that That is a great comment.
6: Um, I think. Hey Eli, this yeah. is Ramon Leon, can you hear me? Yes. One thing, one comment that I would make is um, that you have to be careful how to interpret the literature because there have been two, um, when we look at this productivity right uh, per area basis, you have the traditional ecological productivity that has to do with how much biomass that system can produce. And then many people have kind of translated that into, okay, how much grain or how much oil or how much uh, fiber we can produce from that area. Uh, but that, how you allocate this relationship between farm size and productivity is not that straightforward. And the reason is because you not only have those biotic and abiotic factors driving those relationships, but also you have different levels of complexity how that biomass is produced. So a, a lot of the misunderstanding is uh, and that's and a little bit what uh, Zach was mentioning, the technology that we use at the large scale is very, very different than the technology at a middle-sized farm and it's very, very different at a small farm. And then when you start diversifying that system, the complexity of the management increases in a manner that is not proportional to changes in biomass allocation. So that complexity really drives a lot of those relationships. And that's what GMOs have been very good at, regardless of the changes in productivity. They really have simplified production at many levels.
1: Um, thank you, That that is a great comment. Uh, and I think it does point out something that we hope to get at as a group, which is some of the, there's actually some uh, ecology-based literature, which may be helpful in resolving some of the questions of ecology and things like uh, land fragmentation and productivity um, that, that could be very useful to put in a review. Um, I think it's about time for us to move to the second topic. Um, I did just want to point out one more sort of thread from the text comments. Um, we had Daniela. We also had uh, Joanna mentioning um, some interest in high-value crops. Um, so high value crops which may be grown on small acreages but maybe orders of magnitude more profitable um, could really sort of throw off the math in some of these areas Um, it's something we've talked about and it may be one of those cases where we really have to break out the national data into smaller categories but um, we definitely appreciate those comments and it's something we hope to look at um, and hopefully provide something that is useful to people who express that interest there. Um, So I think I'll go ahead and turn it over to uh, Dalton for our second topic.
7: Thanks, Eli. Everyone see that? Good to go? All right. Um, So, hello everyone. My name, for those of you who don't know me, my name is, uh, oops, (laughs) my name is Dalton George, third year PhD student in uh, the Forestry Environmental Resources Department. And uh, I'm gonna be presenting our second topic of interest, which um, when compared to the first topic is um, markedly different in a couple of ways. Uh, First of all, um, this topic is much more centered on the idea of um, ag biotech innovation Um, systems um, and is a little bit more unbounded and not as singularly directed as our first topic of choice. So questions related to, um, you know, what exactly we're going to review and the goals of that review, there are multiple still at this point. And today I'm going to present to you um, uh, what those are and the thematic threads that have emerged so far during our investigation of this topic of the ag biotech innovation pipeline. So um, this was one of the three pre-proposals that we submitted earlier in the summer that we got feedback on from the faculty and we decided to continue to pursue this topic um, in part because we received probably the most um, diverse and energetic feedback of all of the proposals. Um, And we attributed that to uh, a number of reasons. Um, I think most notably, potentially the experience that this group um, at GES has firsthand um, with with, uh, this topic. Um, So we started off our investigations in a broad literature review based around this question of what are the barriers and limitation to progressing from idea generation um, in the most earliest stages of research all the way to that idea becoming an actual commercial product. And on our first cursory review of the literature, we sort of identified these seven uh, distinct stages, Um, idea generation, basic R&D, applied R&D, advanced R&D, regulatory evaluation, pre-commercial processes, and then all the way to commercialization. And what we also started to notice is that literature that was investigating this from an agricultural biotechnology standpoint was divided into two broad camps, Um, literature that was focused on challenges specifically related to research and research goals, and literature that was specifically focused on challenges to commercialization and corporate goals. Um, And as a note, uh, I forgot to mention this in the the very first slide, Um, we are approaching this whole pipeline concept from the idea of university to industry translation. Trans, uh, transitions, um, while recognizing the fact that there are entire processes of um, idea generation to commercialization that happen within the walls of industry itself, um, but we're primarily interested with that uh, with research that starts in the university to and then transitions to um, uh, industry. Um, so yeah, so the broad camps of literature point. At, in different directions down this pipeline. And this line here is supposed to uh, designate where we've approximated that division to be. And the main problem we see with this is actually focusing on, you know, different parts of the uh, different uh, sections of the pipeline itself instead of the whole conglomeration. Um, so in looking at the whole system, um, we started to uh, investigate um, three uh, uh, thematic threads, if you will. The first is that the common problems that are expressed um, across this entire system. So these are just very general thematic categories um, that we've encountered um, in the literature. There's lots of um, explanations that relate to the lack of technical capacity to pursue different kinds of interventions. Um, Lack of R&D funding, especially in university research that can stall basic or early applied stages of research. Costs of regulatory compliance and rules and regulations for approving GE crops across different countries, that should be a problem that is very familiar to a lot of people here at GES, um, as is the fifth category, um, which relates to public resistance and lack of acceptance of uh, genetically engineered uh, crop biotechnology. Um, And so in first identifying these common problems, uh, we were able to advance to actually investigating some of the key complexities that are associated with these problems. Um, and what we started to do in our review is uh, categorize these according to um, different, I guess, sectors, if you will. So, um, biological complexities, for example, a couple of examples related to technical hurdles from moving from model plant systems to target crop systems, um, also transitioning from lab to environments to field environments. Social complexities related to different, uh, different things, such as culture of academic research versus commercial development and what effect that has on development. Um, public skepticism of long-term GE crop safety, which is usually tethered to a mistrust of corporations. I think we're all, a lot of us here at GS are very familiar with that topic. Um, and then aside from that idea of safety, uh, a skepticism around safety um, is the idea that cultural norms and values can actually be positioned against the adoption of GE crop technology um, in certain contexts, aside from the um, topic of safety. Um, And then lastly, some political complexities related to allocation of funding and making decisions and priorities about research agendas, and also um, political complexities related to protectionist policies that um, are in place to protect local markets from foreign powers. Um, So in investigating these complexities has naturally moved us um, as a uh, cohort in the Ag BioFuse um, program, we're we're being very conditioned to think about systems of complexity. So we started asking questions about how these complexities actually relate to each other. Um, and again, all of this is very preliminary, thematic, thread-based summary. Um, so generally speaking, we started to um, articulate you know, relationships between like, social and biological complexities, social and political complexities, and political and biological uh, complexities. So just a few examples listed here of potential fruitful pathways of uh, continued research in, in this vein. Um, How, you know, a culture of academic research, which is mainly aimed um, at producing knowledge as opposed to maybe products, um, and is embedded in a culture of uh, publishing and teaching and other university-related responsibilities, can actually elongate transition times between basic, applied, and advanced stages of research Um, in the social-political realm. Um, one example uh, of that is, you know, how cultural norms and values of certain European countries can inform the precautionary principles that prevent, um, well, maybe not so prevent, but make it very difficult to approve um, and adopt uh, the usage of uh, crop biotechnology. And some political biological complexity relationships. Um, one example of that could be, you know, decisions to direct public dollars to R and D funding that affect allocation of resources needed to overcome those technical hurdles um, and transitions between different stages of research. Um, And then lastly, the last thematic thread that has emerged uh, recently are curiosities related to systematic transitions. Um, So what this relates to uh, is the idea that there are certain points um, in this progression, in this pipeline, if you will, where um, the stages are transitioning and within that there's a lot of work and changes in thinking and changes in goals um, and changes in resource allocation that happen that maybe are a little black boxed by um, more standardized uh, communications of what the pipeline represents. Um, so for example, you know, a, a curiosity question that, we've, that we're asking about basic to applied research um, is when do, when do researchers start thinking commercially um, and when do they not? Um, From the research stage to tech transfer, we're very interested in the question of improved, how this improves outcomes for university research and what that exactly means. Um, Scaling up, so from advanced R&D to pre-commercial stages of industrial production and distribution, um, how do the, very interested in the question of how do roles and relationships between different stakeholders start to change and who facilitates these transitions. Um, And then lastly, in sort of a different vein, public resistance to public ex- acceptance. So that transition um, isn't necessarily about transitioning between stages, but is maybe a broader question about um, asking about is, re- is public resistance to genetically engineered crop technology what it once was and how how has that changed if it has and how might this change over time? So that comes from encountering some notions in the literature that Changes in applications of genetically engineered crops, so changing from an eradication uh, pesticide herbicide related paradigm to something more like enhancing nutritional qualities um responding to uh abiotic stressors that are related to changing climate so those kinds of applications can if ge crop technology is applied in this way does that come with a change in public attitudes um so what uh where we're at now um is uh, where we're at now is at these sort of three pathways for further exploration. Um, uh, we are noticing how resource investments and resource utilizations at each stage look differently. So we're interested in question, We're interested in questions about where do resources come from? How could these processes be restructured and reconfigured to improve outcomes potentially? Um, and second, um, we recon- recognize that not all markets for GE crops are created equal and function the same. So, um, we would like to investigate closer historical progression of markets for current GE crops to understand mechanisms of market creation, perpetuation, and how this might change in the future as applications of G- as applications of GE crops continue to multiply and reach uh, later stages of development. Um, and third. Um, Not all research is meant to be commercial and not all researchers uh, look to do commercial research. Um, So specifically, how do university, we're interested in the question of how university researchers relate their roles, goals, and values with other actors in the innovation system and what opportunities for alignment might exist, what opportunities for different kinds of alignments might exist between these diverse stakeholder roles, goals, and values. Um, And all of this is directed at not only at the, um, prospect of, uh, doing a, you know, bounded, uh, rigorous literature review, but also directions for our future cohort, uh, project, um, and any other offshoots that this cohort might have related to their own dissertations, but as well as collaborative work. Um, so as Eli iterated, uh, that's the, that's all I have as Eli iterated earlier, um, discussion related to feedback and commentary and suggestions on our conceptual direction any specific literatures that we should investigate or um, other key questions and insights that this group might have that um, they that we that we might have missed or might be really important to um, the directions that the multiple directions that this has uh, that is this is moving Thank you am I now managing the muting and unmuting
3: um, I think I can also unmute people if need be. So yeah if y'all have questions you can put them in the chat but feel free to just raise your hand in the participant section and we will unmute you and you can ask there as well. Okay so Joanna I'm gonna unmute you and you have a question. Yeah I was wondering how hard do you think it's gonna be to find like resources and information about, uh, the corporate side of, uh, the tech development, you know, like, I don't know how secretive they are, or how open they are with their processes. And so have you, have you run into that yet?
7: Um, very secretive, um, about process. Definitely. Um, we've been playing around with the idea that, uh, there's a, there's potentially a way it, there's potentially a way to sit down and do some, Um, stakeholder interviews with people from industry, as long as it's directed um, at generally at uh, their roles and goals and values related to different uh, aspects of um, innovation, as opposed to asking specifically about the kind of work that they're doing. Um, uh, There's plenty, I think there's a few resources related specifically to uh, field trials and um, approvals and things of that nature. So you can figure out what's being put out there, but when it comes to the earlier stages of development related to basic R and D and applied R and D, yeah, that's not necessarily out there to be uh, studied freely. Um, but we are um, having active discussions about what it might what it might look like for us uh, strategically to sit down with um, people from industry um, and talk about these topics uh, without betraying their desire to keep. Um, their proprietary information um, closed off. So I see in the chat, uh, Nicole Wutzman has uh, posted a um, paper for us. Thank you very much for that, Nicole. How agricultural research systems shape a technological regime that develops genetic engineering, but locks out agricultural innovation. Yeah, that's a, that seems very relevant.
3: And thank you, Gene R., for the recommendation to talk to um, Dr. Thompson in the Ag and Life Sciences College. We, as Dalton mentioned, like we understand the importance of like, speaking to individuals in industry, but also see that as a challenge. But it's nice to know that there are like easy connections that we can contact and get information from that way as well. So we appreciate that recommendation. We also encourage any other recommendations if y'all have any or know of anyone who works closely with anyone in industry who would be willing to talk to us. So Fred asks if, so we mentioned that European attitudes are important for consideration and China may soon change its attitude And would that be expected to have an impact in the U.S.?
7: That's a great question. I would, I I think there's plenty of people in this room right now that know more about that question than us. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my question back to Fred, um, and maybe we can unmute him is um, what he exactly means by China may soon change its attitude.
4: Okay. Oh, I I was just bringing that up because, you know, uh, China basically just uh, purchased Syngenta Mm
8: -hmm.
4: and um, there's also very much you see in the political establishment among agricultural entomologists, a view that maybe things are changing there. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's always that kind of issue about whether we're at a tipping point and Europe is usually seen as influencing Africa Obviously, China has inroads into Africa. I don't, I mean, it's a whole geopolitical thing I know very little about, but I just thought, um, you know, Europe always gets that kind of uh, upper hand somehow, and I wonder if it becomes less relevant.
7: Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I am. I'm not as familiar with the geopolitical relationships between uh, China and the United States in this area. Is anybody anybody else in the cohort more familiar with that? Or anybody on the call has a comment on that? I find it really interesting to think about.
5: Yeah, I can add, um, I read one paper about um, a BT rice Uh development in China and it was actually kind of striking to me how similar the, um, I guess, early stages of what we would call the pipeline seem to be to what is typically described um, in the US literature that I've read. So I found that really interesting, but I think it'll be kind of those later stages where we might see um, more of a divergence. Um, yeah, that's, that's my thought.
3: <laughs> so we have, a couple of questions posed in the chat and then a couple of people with their hands raised. I'm gonna quickly just get to those posed in the chat and then I see the people with their hands raised. So Julio asked, or you mentioned, I was thinking about the complexities that you mentioned previously, which ones are more supported by the literature and what is the role of international organizations in the governances of GM in developing contexts? I also, and then provided an article um, about boundary work for our reference.
7: So we have a so Eli go
1: ahead. Um, I had an answer to that China question, um, which uh, I think people may be seeing in the news lately. So um, right, that sometimes the direction of uh, agricultural product trade. Um, in and out of the U.S. is maybe underestimated when it comes to China. So if you don't know this already, you should appreciate that we send a tremendous amount of agricultural production to China. Um, And their regulators have allowed some GM imports, but I I think what it seemed to me Fred was driving at is that the innovations we may see or the question of what makes a useful innovation in a lot of cases would relate to what is palatable, not to the US consumer, but to the Chinese consumer. Um, There's some counterexamples as well. Um, I know we previously had a discussion about uh, the fake meat uh, industry, and that's also come up a lot due to supply chain issues in the pandemic. Most of the vegetable protein source for that is grown in China. Um, so some of the social issues and tastes may go the opposite direction um, from uh, the soy we're shipping to China. They're shipping us pea protein. Um, interestingly, uh, we could face a very different set of um, things that would be useful and consumer preferences in those two cases, even though they look really similar as products.
7: Uh, we have another handout up um, from Professor Roseno. Go
9: ahead. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. Interesting discussions. I just wanted to comment on the uh, transgenic crop plants and international agriculture since a few comments and came up on that. There are two CG centers, um, the International Potato Center, SIP, that's developed transgenic potatoes that are being tested now in Kenya and Uganda, and they've passed through hurdles. They have three pyramided genes, and they're being used for Um, late blight control and growers that don't have access to fungicides anyway don't have to apply fungicides on these crops. And then the other big crop that's being um, tested now is at IITA also in in Kenya but uh, transgenic banana because of of, uh, Panama disease. Panama disease is, is spread all over the world. It's in Africa. It's killing bananas and Bananas are a major subsistence crop for a lot of smallholder farmers in Africa. So, when the when a food source is limited and people are uh, a chance of starving, you know, then these kinds of crops could be are going to be deployed. And the CG centers are working actively, and so is USAID as well. So, the international aspect you know fred mentioned about europe influencing what they do in africa a lot of chinese companies are now doing aid work in in uh, africa as well so um the use of technology in particular biotechnology in africa is expanding
7: thank you for those comments um if i could redirect uh since i don't see i don't think there's any more hands um if i could quickly direct um yeah, the conversation to uh, a point that um, Professor uh, Jason Delborne made. Um, Jason, uh, could we unmute you and have you expand a little bit on your comment about um, how linear progression is not necessarily good, um, and ways to ask uh, different kinds of research questions on that topic? Um, my comment is basically that you know from the first slide
8: about the linear progression um, where you identify the different types of equation that there are at least some organizations or actors who would oppose the progress from one end to the other. Um, so what I'm encouraging you as a group to think about is not to assume that that, that line of movement from one from idea to is necessarily good. Um, that, that there's a particular outcome that is favored by some actors, um, but it might be better to think about the ways which some of that movement by some actors, and also that maybe a better model than that kind of linear model that uh, sort of evidence go from one from the, the basic research questions to a particular technology. That in fact, there's sort of a fan of possibilities that come at each moment where there's many lines that, that could emanate from a particular phase. Um, and that we really see the line of the linear model only, I'm not. scholarship on social construction of technology that talks about that importance of not thinking about uh, the technology development as a
7: linear model. That's just... Thanks, Jason, for that explanation. And um, I hope it's not speaking too much for the rest of the cohort to say that um, I think when we started off with this, just very simple, linear conception of, um, innovation, investigating the complexities and relationships between them, I think we are starting to move toward, move more towards that sort of idea. Um, I'd open up the floor to other cohort members, uh, to comment on that, but, um, that is, uh, that so far has been my, um, my understanding of, uh, what these, what our investigations so far are pointing towards. Thank you for that.
1: Um, I, one thing I may add to that is we we do often try to walk that line in articulating this topic as we we try to put it out there in a way that explains our interest um, without going too far into the assumption of saying oh these are good ideas that are just being thwarted by those meddling kids. Um, uh, I agree that your it's a very important point. And sometimes I think on this topic it's proven to be uh, an issue of, of rhetoric, really, of explaining this interest. Um, one more thing to add is that one I've reconciled this for myself by thinking that when we look at the system overall, we see those twisting paths and alternatives, but. For this topic, we're sometimes imagining the path of individual inventions being retraced or deduced. And for each of those, we could hopefully identify sort of a specific line that it took, right? Because it either did or didn't go down certain paths. Um, And looking at those individual paths may be illuminating.
5: Yeah, I feel that as a group, we were trying to kind of, I guess, take a closer look at how earlier steps on one kind of trajectory can really impact where things go in the future, even if there's a change in stakeholders, uh, et cetera, and who's invested in the technology. But it's hard to kind of, I guess, parse that apart from having like a a linear model like that. So I think that's something we're still grappling with.
7: So I think we're pushing right up against the end of our time here. Um, I'd invite one more last uh, question or comment Um, it looks like we've received several paper suggestions, several, uh, suggestions for contacts. Um, thank you so much to all of you for providing that for us, um, uh, for our cohort, uh, I've saved the chat, um, and this is recorded. So we'll be able to access this to maybe grab, grab some of those, um, verbal suggestions and ideas that were expressed. Um, Yeah. If there's no more if there's no more last minute comments or questions for us, um, I think we can close this out. And again, thank you so much for everyone for taking the time to bear with us today and um, expressing um, our early stage ideas. I think it was a really rich and um, helpful discussion for us. Um, yeah. Thank you for uh, and thank you for treating it with um, treating it with care. Sometimes it's kind of uh, risky for. Uh, to come out with a new idea and talk about it um, with a, a big group like this. But I think it's been really good.
0: So thank, thank you to all the AgBioFuse students. And if there is any other, any other communication for them to be in touch with you, uh, to be in touch with us and happily to send it over. So next week, I just want to let everyone know we have Owen Edwards going to be talking about coral adaptation and resilience with genetics. So we'll see everyone next Tuesday and a big round of applause. Thank you very much to the eight Ag BioFuse fellows.